All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS. Your history is secretly just math, speculative fiction, book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. I am back today with Jay Deal to finish out our series on Foundation by Isaac Asimov. When we finished that up, we teased, though I'm not sure that we said, you know, for certain that we would cover the first season of the TV show. But at any rate, that is what we are going to do today. So welcome back, Jay. I'm happy to be back. Talk some more Foundation. Uh, this going to be a lot to talk about. There's going to be more than I anticipated, I think. But before we get into that, let me just take a moment here to thank again the Patreon supporter who commissioned this series. This has been a tremendous amount of fun. It's been a really great part of the last year for me. This is not something, though, that we would have done without this supporter's nudge and, and also financial support. So thank you so much for that. But also, before we start talking, Jay, I think we've got to do a little bit of a housekeeping qualification here, or caveat, I suppose, right? We need to be honest about our qualifications to even have this conversation, because we know that this show is taking some elements of its adaptation from subsequent books in the Foundation series, and also from the Robots stories, things we did not cover, things we didn't read together. And I have not continued reading since we did our episodes on the first book. And is that true for you as well, Jay? Or have you secretly continued? No, I, I did not go back and reread Foundation and Empire, um, you know, and, and haven't read them for many years. So yeah, I, I sort of a limited ability to assess a few of the things that have wound up um, in in the first season of the television show, for sure. Um, some surprising decisions in, in some ways uh, on, on the part of the, the showrunners and the writers, I have to say. But yeah, I think that's a, a good thing for everybody to be aware of. Yeah, it, what it what it boils down to is that uh, we might end up ascribing some things to the TV creators that actually do draw on some source material from books that we haven't read or at least not you know in in decades. So just a caveat there, I suppose, also a sort of preemptive apology. But the other thing that we need to say before we get into this is just that the show is not an adaptation of the entire book. It is an adaptation of part one and part two for sure. But yeah. it may actually also be an adaptation of part three. I wasn't certain about that, Jay. It's interesting. I mean, it, it depends where they go with season right. two. Um, and, you know, on, on some level, we end season one um, kind of roughly where uh, part two of the book ends. Um, that is to say... Um, Anacreon is sort of a force to be reckoned with now on Terminus. Um, we've seen the ascent of Salvor Hardin very briefly referred to as mayor, I think, in the last episode or second to last episode. Um, but on the other hand, there's also been some inflections and some conflicts with Anacreon that didn't really take place in part two and are sort of played out in part three a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're just waiting to see um, kind of where the story goes in season two and whether they're going to jump further forward in time and start to go into uh, parts four and five or whether or not there's still lots to be played out here with the relationship between Terminus and Anacreon going forward. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. Yeah, and I have no idea. I don't know any, you know, announcements that have been made about that or even, you know, announcements about casting or something that might give us some no. clues about that. But yeah, there's a big element of part three that ends up 
here in this story, and that's the 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 ship Invictus, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, but it, but it's all taking place. The whole Salver Hardin storyline that's that happens on screen is all taking place in sort of one moment, whereas in the book, those are are separated by by decades, and yeah. that's just not what they've done here. So it's unclear if we're going to get some of the other things from Part Three that don't show up in this story at all in Season Two, or yeah, if as you say, Jay, they're either doing their whole a thing entirely of their creation or are going to jump into you know an adaptation yeah. of part four I, I am interested to see what they do and their, their plans clearly are to to push very far forward with this because in one of gail's voiceovers at the i think in the very first episode references made not only to salver harden but also to hober mallow and to the mule um and, and so the 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 framework is being the found ha, the foundation is being laid. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do it all the, the found, time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the foundation is being laid here, um, not only for the later parts of Foundation, but also for characters from Foundation and Empire, um, and obviously the hinting at the sort of foundation of the second Foundation. Oh my goodness, whatever. Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> it's Asimov's fault. It's not our yeah, fault. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This is not my fault that I can't stop saying Foundation here. Um, but yeah, I mean. The the intention seems to be for this story to carry over many seasons and go through the trilogy at least um, uh, is the goal. So how much time they want to spend doing more with Anacreon and Terminus, um, how much they want to flesh out part three into a further conflict. Yeah, that we'll have to wait and see what season two brings us there. Right. And, and, and Goyer has said in an interview that he has an 80 episode arc planned yeah. out that's an adaptation that the- of essentially the whole darn thing. And so that's, yeah. you know, eight seasons of 10 episodes a piece. And so at some point we are going to leave Salver Hardin behind and catapult forward in time or, you know, shift location in, in some way. But yeah, I have no idea what season two is going to do. It didn't feel like we were done with the Salver Hardin story when it finishes up. So my guess is that we'll no. at least get some of that in a second season. But yeah. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's get into the episode proper here, Jay, and I guess maybe you know give listeners a sort of roadmap to what we're going to do, and because you know we had a particular interest in covering Foundation, and so we're going to do that here with the TV show as well. We're going to talk about the three things that we were really interested in when we were covering the book, and those were the appropriation of medieval and late antique history into a you know, science fiction setting, also psychohistory and the philosophy of history, and then also political philosophy. So let's just get started, Jay, I think by talking about medievalism and the the fleshing out of the broader world that we get in this show, which is something the show does a lot of. And let's start by talking about government, the government of the empire, because I think who is in charge of this empire was a bit of a shock. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, I'll say, first of all, that I actually enjoyed the first uh, season of this show quite a lot. Um, some high points and some low points. Very much was not what I was expecting. Some some really interesting decisions to make about what to retain and what to fundamentally change uh, about the novel itself. And obviously, the big change one of one of the major changes here is the introduction of these three genetically identical emperor figures um, who wind up being extremely fundamental characters to the show, um, which contrasts greatly with the novel in which um, the emperor is a named figure, but 
does not appear. And in fact, we are told um, that at the time, Selden is sort of being arrested for his treasonous acts against the state, um, is merely a child emperor being controlled by major aristocratic families that effectively control of the empire is not in the emperor's hand. And, and that was one of Asimov's very clear attempts to evoke the state of the late Roman Empire, um, probably a direct reference to Romulus Augustulus, the last Western Roman emperor who was just a child sort of under control of a general. Um, so this idea of uh, one of the symptoms of the decline of the empire being the passing of control from the emperor to these sort of various rivaling factions and stuff like that is completely done away with in the TV series. Instead, we get this um, extremely autocratic um, and uh, as of this moment, apparently still extremely powerful and authoritarian genetic dynasty, um, always being ruled by the central figure. It's an interesting choice because it immediately um, does away with one of the, the central pillars um, upon which Asimov built the idea of the decline of a galactic empire, which was the fracturing of centralized authority, um, which is still pretty alive and well in the TV show as of the opening. Yeah. I mean, the, the emperor here is a, an absolute ruler. Uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be any kind of aristocracy in no. this empire. There is the emperor and then there are other people. And that's, that's all we see. We don't, we see bureaucrats. We see uh, people who are involved in, you know, administrators, people who are involved in the administration of the government, though not very many of them actually either. One of them is Julian Bashir from Deep Space Nine, it turns out actually, but, uh, yeah, um, right. you know, <laughs> that was a cool cameo. Well, I guess it's not yeah, technically a cameo. Cute. It just felt like one to me, I suppose, because I thought that's yeah. Dr. Bashir. Uh, but yeah, we don't, there's no aristocracy here and we don't even really see that much actual, like, functioning of government. We have palace in people, uh, and they simply carry out the orders of this absolute ruler. And um, that just seems to be how government functions here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, whereas you might have expected uh, to get a, a kind of setup here involving um, court intrigue and rivaling factions and jockeying for favor, um, a, a kind of narrative device that seems very popular in TV today. One can think of things like, you know, even kind of dramedies like The Great uh, about Catherine <laughs> yeah. the Great in Russia. Um, but but this idea of sort of political intrigue at the imperial court, absolutely none of it, right? Yeah, there, there are no other rivals for power at this point. There's no one seeking to displace the emperor. Um, in fact, the only political intrigue we get um, has to do with tensions amongst the three emperors themselves, the, 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 the three genetically identical emperors in the current dynasty. Um, and other than that, they seem pretty secure. Uh, there's, they, they have no internal rivals for power whatsoever. And the opening uh, title sequence for this suggests otherwise, right? So, you know, watching that very early in, in, in yeah. your experience of the show, and it's a cool title sequence, but it's it's mimicking, it's taking a cue from, perhaps we'll say, Game of Thrones. And so, so one of the things it's doing is showing us like different banners or like different, you know, symbols for different factions, which you learn who those are as you watch the show. But, you know, when your first experience of the show is just this title sequence, or, you yeah. know, like a teaser and then this title sequence, I think, oh, 
oh, this is these are going to be the 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 aristocratic houses, yeah, that exactly. are going to get fleshed out here in the story. It turns out they're they're not. That these are the symbols of uh, what are from the very start called barbarian kingdoms. I know, <laughs> amazing, right? Yeah, they're they're not provinces of the empire that break away and then you know, as part of the fall and in falling become barbarians. They are barbarians yeah. to start. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when, when you and I recorded our very first episode uh, about part one of foundation and we're discussing the ways in which Asimov's um, notion of the fall of the galactic empire was and was not connected um, to sort of the, the quote unquote history of the end of the Western Roman Empire. Um, one of the things we noted was that Asimov really focuses on internal problems and really has no sense of um, the barbarian, the invading barbarians as a contributing cause um, to the fall of the Roman Empire, to the fall of the Galactic Empire at all. And barbarians only appear once imperial authority starts to recede and sort of leaves formerly imperial provinces to transform into barbarian kingdoms. There's no there's no barbarians until the empire goes away or anything like that. Here we get something very different evoked and and you know the first sign we get that imperial authority might be fraying is this kind of terrorist attack on Trantor apparently carried out by some barbarian kingdoms, although I'm not really sure it was ever fully resolved who was responsible for the attack yeah, was, on the Star was Bridge. Not. That's, that's going to have to be a, a thread that gets picked up in season two for sure. Um, so, yeah, very, very interesting distinction being made here, whereas Asimov's notion, what he really latched onto in thinking about the decline of the empire was this kind of Gibbon-esque um, internal factors. Um, that, you know, we'll talk more about this. Um, the show seems to have gone kind of in the opposite direction and is really focusing on external pressures and revolts in the provinces and um, military threats um, and you know, religious ones. We'll get to that as well. Um, but, you know, again, a, a sort of interesting decision here is made. I, I, this can be more compelling as a TV series, I suppose. But, you know, we get there were some interesting opportunities here to show what a kind of stagnated bureaucracy might look like, whereas, you know, Lee Pace might be strolling around trying to get something done and can't get it through his own bureaucracy or something like that. It's it's just too massive and too weighty um, that. You know, this idea of the damning of curiosity or this kind of cultural stagnation, which the show does want to evoke, but is never really showing us it or anything like that. There's no glimpses of sort of um, school settings or the idea that kind of curiosity is falling away in the universities or anything. Um, yeah, it's just very interesting divergence from the source material there in some ways. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna compare some some passages from the book to some yeah. actual <laughs> dialogue here in the show, and yeah, I mean, Emperor Lee Pace, or I don't know, Emperor Thranduil, is that who yeah, we should be right. what we yeah. should be calling yes. him. I guess we could call yeah. him Cleon, but uh, yeah, he is so powerful he can kill people by shouting at them. So you know, that's exactly that's a real that's a real thing that happened here. Well, before we leave government behind and go talk about science and technology, I I want to talk just a little bit about some of the ways that this depiction of the Trinitarian clone emperors mm. is what I'm calling them, or, you know, the genetic dynasty, as the show calls them, it does draw on uh, some bits of, of Roman history. And then also just think about sort of the, the ideology here. I mean, so one of the things that 
that we learn about this dynasty really in just a bunch of offhand comments, actually, is that it's a 400-year-old dynasty. And so it's 400 years ago, uh, the Emperor Cleon I decided to solve, presumably, a succession crisis by cloning himself and declaring that clone to be his successor, to be the next emperor after him. And then that has continued, but that but that the part of the process here is that you you don't wait until you're old to clone your successor. You clone your successor basically right away. Your successor is always alive. And in fact, you resign and when you're old and let the middle-aged version of you, the middle-aged clone, take over. And this is... So, I mean, I don't want to do too much crit-fic here, but this is clearly a design for TV so that we can tell a Correct. story over several centuries and have one actor play this the role of emperor for a TV audience, which is a brilliant move. But this also is really, I think, capturing the spirit of the Tetrarchy, the idea of having splitting the empire into two places and having a, a senior emperor and a co-emperor and to always be rotating through, to be promoting through those ranks so that the succession is already established, rows and rows and rows down, because succession crisis is the biggest threat to the empire. This is cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's a cool idea. It is, you know, it's it's very made for TV. You're right. We're going to be treated to um, many, many glimpses of Lee Pace's biceps in coming seasons. Yeah, Lee Pace um, is going to be the only actor in like every episode of this show, I think. Yeah, the whole, all I mean, 80 presumably. episodes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, he's, he's well, and, and also the, the child emperor and the, the right, emperor right, emeritus, yeah. <laughs> Brother Dusk, also. Fortuitously looked yeah. into long-term <laughs> roles here. Um, but Lee Pace is the one with the biceps we want to see. Correct. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. We saw much of his biceps and abs in this season for sure. Um, but no, it, it, it's both sort of a natural made for TV, but it is a cool concept. Um, and it does evoke something in Roman history, the sort of notion of the junior emperor um, being sort of trained on the job to become the next successor and things like this. I thought it was a bit odd that they gave this only – you know, 400 years of tradition at this point, you know. In a 12,000-year empire. In a 12,000-year empire, right? It's very new in that sense. And, you know, I, I think what they were trying to point out, what they were trying to evoke was that, yeah, the Tetrarchy was a pretty recent invention, um, right? So, sort of 280 CE-ish or so. And so, really only existed for 200 years out of the longer history of the Roman Empire and stuff. But the Roman Empire didn't last for 12,000 years either. So, you could have given more weight to this idea of the genetic dynasty by sort of saying, oh, it's existed for a thousand years or two thousand years or, or, or something. Yeah, bigger um, bigger percentage of the, of the yeah, time. Which, yeah, which would have made it feel more entrenched and less likely to sort of easily be overthrown and stuff like this, but also something that people would start to question in a substantive way and things. I mean, this is a, a very minor point, um, but it's a cool concept. It reminded me of a uh, Anne Leckie's ancillary series of sci-fi novels, which also has kind of a Roman empire in space and a, a single emperor existing across many bodies whose consciousness is sort of constantly being transferred into new bodies so that there has only been one emperor for the entire history of the, the empire, the Rach, as it's called in these books. Um, and, and, and sort of very similar to this idea of there only being one emperor now who sort of just continuously reincarnates himself basically through cloning. 
Um, yeah, cool idea. Uh, it worked. It worked pretty well in the TV series. Something we've already talked about that that also resonates with the late antique and maybe even especially sort of early Byzantine emperors is the idea of palace emperors. This business with the the yeah. tetrarchy and you know the having a senior emperor and a junior emperor each in in each different half of the empire is is about succession crisis, but is also about military crisis. This is a, a yeah. way to have multiple people with with high level authority um, spread around the empire dealing with crises and military crises in different frontiers. And so these are really uh, military emperors. I mean, Diocletian, who comes up with this idea of the Tetrarchy. And, and just to be clear, the Tetrarchy itself doesn't ever really work uh, the way yeah, that Diocletian exactly. designs it, but like the, the values of kind of some of the idea of it and the language of it uh, does persist for centuries, as you, as you said, Jay. But these are soldier emperors. These are military emperors who are out in the field. One of the things that happens here is that each of these four figures, that's the the, the tetra in, in tetrarchy, uh, has a, a, a base of operations, a capital or a palace of some sort that is really just a military base close to the frontier. That is the opposite of what we see actually happening here with this genetic dynasty, <laughs> yeah. where much more like what we get in the early Byzantine period, we have emperors who are essentially imprisoned in their own palace by their own servants. I mean, they're in charge, but they are not allowed to leave. And part of the idea here, and the show actually, is a fear of them getting killed, but that everything yeah. is about making sure there's a successor and that no one is ever in any danger of any sort. And that was an interesting move, I thought, as well. Yeah, I mean, these are not uh, these are not your barracks emperors here, for sure. Um, none of these guys leaves the palace. And in fact, when Brother Day, in, in one of the more interesting plot developments towards the later part of the season, decides to leave the palace and go on just a diplomatic mission rather than sending the emperor emeritus, um, it's considered to be a kind of revolutionary break with tradition and so forth. And they do evoke over and over again in various ways the kind of obsession with the security of the emperors. They wear these imperial auras, these kind of golden force fields that protect them. That's something that actually is in Asimov's book, but not until part three, I think. And it's not the emperor wearing them, but uh, Salvar Harden using one of them. Um, but we do have this kind of sense of, you know, you know this kind of old storytelling trope of the emperor in charge, yet without any personal liberty or personal freedom to do as they will, that they're kind of bound um, by the traditions that have both empowered them, but kind of imprisoned them at the same time. Um, and I think the storyline with the, uh, you know, the the genetically distinct brother brother Dawn, um, whose, whose genetic code is not accurate and who is kind of a problem because of this, is intended to sort of thematically draw out this idea of, of what it would be like to be a palace emperor, um, to be confined in this sort of way. It's interesting that you bring up the Byzantine parallels because it does seem to me like the imperial ideology and visuals is very much kind of saturated in Byzantine influence. I mean, the name Cleon um, is kind of uh, kind of Greek soundingish in some ways. Uh -huh, um, yes, this kind of mural imagery that's this kind of painting that uh, of imperial ideology that we find all over the palace seems very in keeping with with Byzantine kind of um, uh, 
imperial ideology with ways of sort of constructing the cult of the emperor and stuff like that. Yeah, even just the the look of it actually. Yeah. Uh, it looks like a early Byzantine, like a sixth century mosaic. Absolutely. It's cool. Absolutely. I mean, and it is it's cool looking the, the the sort of moving living paint. It's very sort of like Harry Potter reimagined as sci-fi kind of. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, one of the cool things there is that it's actually the the senior emperor, Emperor Emeritus, as you called him, yeah. Jay, who's actually like that's one of his chief functions is to spend a little bit of time every day working on this, yeah, this shifting mural that tells the story of the the dynasty. Uh, interestingly, though, that it's just in the palace. I wondered how many people really yeah. see that. I, I wanted to think that maybe this is something that also is displayed um, elsewhere around the empire in ways that we see sort of holographic projections of yeah. the, the emperor in, in other places, the way that like, you know, in our own world, we have, you know, a, a photograph of the president in government buildings and that sort of thing. Yeah, totally. And there, there is the moment, I think, when the uh, in the early episodes, when the diplomatic um, delegations from Anacreon and Thespis show up, I, I believe they're kind of ushered through the mural space to see it all. And you can kind of imagine it working a little bit like, you know, like the levitating throne in the Byzantine <laughs> yeah. court and stuff like that, that, you know, people who come to see the emperor are supposed to be sort of like just awestruck with this kind of majesty that it's supposed to um, convey this kind of overpowering cult of the emperor and stuff like that. Although interestingly, as absolutist, and we can talk about this in a little while too, as absolutist as Cleon seems to be, and as much as this show seems to want to engage with religion, very little is made of there being a kind of state religion or of Cleon having any kind of divine status or sacral status or being at the center of any kind of religious cult. There's there's no sense, actually, that there is a kind of state religion or state cult practice or anything like that here, um, which, which is a, a kind of interesting omission given the ways in which they want to build him up as this central figure um, in, in this kind of – you know, Byzantine kind of way, I guess. Well, and there is a a religious esque ideology, though, of what the yes. emperor is for. What does the emperor do in society? The number one thing that the emperor does is to uh, maintain peace. In fact, over and over again, we see these holographic yeah. projections of, or I guess maybe not projections, but sort of holographic images of of the emperor Cleon, uh, and he's saying respect and enjoy the peace, right? Yeah, and so I the think- The emperor's peace. The emperor's yeah. peace, right. It's specifically the emperor's peace. And I think that that's one of the things that we can understand about where this dynasty came from is that it emerged from some moment of civil war, some kind of succession crisis, uh, perhaps a long one, and that that's what this dynasty is about and the, and the cloning yeah. is about is peace, that we put an end to perhaps generations of, of civil war, and that is what we are for. And so in this weird sense of being an undying emperor – which is that's got some real like religious uh, sounding sort of overtones to it there, you know, and, yeah. and maintaining peace, right? Peace, of course, being a word that is important in Roman ideology. I mean, Roman emperors, this is what they say they do too, but is also an important word in Christianity. And in fact, becomes then a super important word when the Roman Empire becomes a Christian emperor, this idea of peace. Absolutely. And we see this in the visual too, with the, there's a hand gesture 
that the yeah. emperor is always making in those holographic uh, images, but then also doing in the court all the time, that is a Roman imperial gesture uh, that means peace, but then also is actually, right, in but in late antiquity, throughout the Middle Ages, appropriated by by other rulers, kings and emperors, yeah. but also by bishops. Yeah, by bishops as the kind of benediction, the, the peaceful yeah. benediction and stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of layers going on here with this kind of peace symbolism. Um, you know, it's a not so subtle reference to to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, um, the, the, the long era without any notable civil war initiated by uh by Augustus the the nominal first Roman emperor um, which it's clearly trying to hint at here that this is a world without civil war and stuff like that um you're right that all these gestures are clearly trying to evoke both a kind of imperial but also a quasi religious ideology um and yeah I, I think that absolutely the emperor here does have a quasi kind of divine status is 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 sort of treated that way and stuff. Um, but it's interesting that in a show that is pretty overt with a lot of its references, right? The peace is the Pax Romana. Um, luminism is pretty clearly Christianity that, you know, th there's very few yeah, yes. attempts made to hide <laughs> a lot of these things that there, I, I, I guess I expected there to be a little bit more hammer on the head, like the emperor is divine, um, that there might have been, you know, you might have even seen him presiding over some quasi religious ritual and stuff like that. But in the end, I think the show is setting up some kind of religious conflict down the road and sort of wants the emperor to be this quasi religious figure, but wants the government to be kind of secular. Doesn't want there to be a sort of state religion or anything like that, because I think it would mess up some of the plot points that they're trying to set up down the road, perhaps. I, I agree. And and also, and this is, you know, getting ahead to thinking about the political philosophy of this show and how it differs from what Asimov is up to. But this is still supposed to be the United States. This is right. supposed to be us. And so we need the government to be secular. But yes, also, it's pretty clear that Lee Pace might be about to become Jesus in the next season. <laughs> So, you know, like that's clearly being yeah. set up and, and uh, we'll, let's, uh, let's, let's not jump ahead. He's too. got the hair for it already. So <laughs> he and, and does. Seen I, him wandering around in kind of a loincloth. So, yeah. I we're, mean, we're, yeah, that whole story arc there with luminism and maybe let's just uh, break the order here of the outline, Jay, and let's just talk about culture yeah. and religion. We Apparently can circle back. We want to, so, yeah, we yeah. want to so bad. Look, yeah, that's what we want to talk about. Language and religion. We don't care about science and technology. Yeah, we'll come back exactly. to that though. But yeah, let's talk yeah. about luminism or religions in, in general. We actually see religions in this show. This one that you've mentioned, Jay, luminism, that is absolutely Christianity. I mean, it's right there. It's called the light. Light is, yeah, I mean, well, it's important luminism. in many religions. Use light as some kind of metaphor, but uh, it's very important for Christianity. And this is a type of like neoplatonic Christianity that's very, very interested in the metaphysics of souls. It's yeah. very cool. I mean, it is very cool. I, 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 I want to give the the writers a lot of credit here. I, I assume they must have done their research on this because there is evocations here of neoplatonism and the kind of eternal return of the soul. There's some inflections from kind of Gnosticism here for sure, which is kind of a Neoplatonic Christian leaning set of cults that we find in the the sort of late Roman Empire. Um, it's But it's clearly Christian as well. It's got an obvious Trinitarian ethos. Um, so it's the, the threefold goddess, the maiden, the mother, and the crone here, um, clearly intended to, to echo the Christian Trinity, which is one of the 
the most distinctive elements of of Christian doctrine and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's pretty well thought out, um, and it, it was a, a pretty well designed ideology. The the spiral walk that the emperor takes upon himself to prove that the emperors in fact have a soul and are not sort of stagnated soulless creatures or something seems very clearly intended to evoke Christian pilgrimage walks um, and the, the sort of need to do it barefoot and stuff right here, you know, sort of calls to mind things like the pilgrimage walk to Compostela um, and other stuff like that. I mean, obviously journey metaphors are replete in religious iconography and but, stuff. I mean, this is even filmed in Spain. It's, it's the Canary Islands, yeah, but you know, exactly. like it's, that yeah. was filmed in what is part of Spain. And it really, yeah, definitely looks like, like that pilgrimage route. I mean, like specifically and explicitly is meant to, to call that to mind. And even just the idea that the, the way that you can get a vision, uh, yeah. from the God is to endure a physical suffering over. Yeah. A, a long journey. I mean, that is that is straight out of medieval Christianity. Oh yeah, absolutely. This kind of ascetic impulse, um, you know, the the kind of imagery that they were using here of throngs of people um, taking on this journey, all sort of in similar clothing. Right, that there's a uniform for this trip that you're supposed to wear. Um, you know, with the pathway kind of supervised by religious authorities and so forth. Um, the iconography there was was very. Um, you know, very clearly inspired um, by both Christian ascetic practices and by kind of Christian pilgrimage practices. Um, and again, I thought it was pretty effective as, as a sort of story point. Um, and, you know, the way Lee Pace kind of bonds with this one pilgrim along the road. Yeah. As soon as they started hanging out together, I was like, well, that guy's not making it to the end of the trip. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but no, pro no problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, th this kind of demonstration um, and, you know, several mentions are made over and over again of how many adherents Luminism has across the Galactic Empire, that it's not just this planet's religion, that it's a cult, um, a cult that has followers across the Galactic Empire, clearly setting it up to be this, you know, not dominant, but majorly influential and getting more influential um, religious tradition out there is clearly intended to evoke kind of the growth of Christianity, which we know scholars like Gibbon have given uh, a lot, a big role to play in the end of the Roman Empire and stuff. So yeah, uh, it, it was, it, it was well constructed, well thought out, um, sort of seemed to fit within the ethos of the show, um, and, and sort of show the ways in which belief systems might question the idea of a genetic dynasty, but also sort of still seem to um, give a lot of credit to religion as a kind of powerful cultural and political force um, in these circumstances. I thought it was well done. The reason this even shows up as a, as a plot element, the reason that the emperor goes to this planet and then undertakes this, uh, this pilgrimage journey is that the luminist church luminism is also has an ecclesiastical organization and the head of this church has just died and now there's yep. going to be a successor and there is a crisis uh, but the crisis is this the crisis is that it is other people um you know a, a meeting of other officials within the church vote they elect yeah. who is going to run the church and it's close there are two candidates one who 
just doesn't want to be involved in politics and someone who clearly does and in a way that's going to be critical of the emperor. And the emperor has to intervene here to make sure that his candidate gets chosen. That also is, that's straight medieval right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's lots of things that this is hinting at, but you know, the, 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 the sort of way in which um, this kind of rival candidate is critiquing the authority of the emperor by basically calling out the notion that um, a genetically identical clone could participate in this transmission of souls that is fundamental to luminist belief, um, you know, is both a well thought out sort of way in which a religion could critique a genetic dynasty, um, but is also very clearly sort of um, trying to hint at the ways in which the growth of religious authority began to exist in some tension with imperial authority. And, you know, you can think about um, the confrontation of Ambrose with the emperor, um, with, with Bishop Ambrose of Milan and the emperor and other ways in which the church, um, you know, could under the right circumstances serve to bolster the bolster the authority of the emperor and under the right circumstances could show the limitations of kind of state authority in a world that believes in holiness and transcendence and which authority over the state might not be the highest form of authority um and and this is sort of the idea that the show is playing with here by trying to to suggest that um under the right circumstances, imperial authority might be forced to sort of bend before an authority that claims a kind of divine inspiration. Yeah, I mean, this definitely calls to mind Ambrose and Theodosius, though I think it also calls to mind the investiture crisis of sure, the 11th century that we're going to – and I think that is where this storyline perhaps is going, though it does also seem like the emperor may have had a, a kind of conversion experience uh, here on this pilgrimage that might be something we're going to explore. I mean, showing him, we were joking about it before, but he just, he just is Jesus. Like in the, the visual depiction of a lot of this pilgrimage, he is filmed in in such a way to look exactly the way that Christ looks in a lot of medieval art. This is this like the the passion of the Christ, the suffering of the Christ. That's how this pilgrimage journey is is filmed, so that he looks very much like that. And I think that's going to have to end up meaning something. That's going to have to signify something to come in in later seasons. I mean, it's it's too on the nose otherwise. And you know, it was interesting the way the the show kind of went with this because I. For instance, it came as no surprise when the vision that the emperor related uh, to the um, the zephyrs of luminism um, turned out to be a complete fabrication, that he'd had no vision or anything like this. And this, this was kind of what I expected, that we're going to see the emperor here um, fabricating a vision um, and sort of using the internal logic of this religious – um, cult to sort of secure his position of power and stuff like that. That seemed perfectly straightforward to me. Um, then, however, when he actually began to use the language of this religion to sort of forgive and potentially allow um, the genetic abnormality of the current youngest emperor, the brother Dusk or brother Dawn figure, 
um, suggesting that perhaps he'd had some kind of legitimate religious conversion that that he was buying into the belief system of luminism. All right, that that took me aback in some ways. That was a nice sort of plot development that I didn't necessarily see coming that suggested that um, the show does not intend to sort of reduce religion here to simply you know, a kind of cynical view of religion as a merely a political tool for the emperors and stuff like that, that, that it can also be um, genuinely felt and that religious conversion can have dramatic, genuine, sincere religious conversion can have dramatic repercussions um, on the sort of um, politi- politics and culture of the empire. And yeah, I mean, I wonder if we're setting up here for some kind of Constantine moment where, you know, current brother day is going to become the first luminist emperor of the of the galactic empire or something like that i mean that is what it feels like to me and 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 the values that he's now practicing the you know the transformation that he has is that now to lean towards mercy very a christian uh ideal and then also the sanctity of individual life Right. Uh, but then this is a place where he kind of runs up against the machinery of the state, where his his order literally, to, literally the machinery, right? Of the state, the robot the of, the state. of the state. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that that is setting up a, an interesting internal conflict in the in the palace there as well, where maybe that he's going to try to be Constantine, but but may struggle with it. I mean, there are a lot of places that this could go. It's it's an incredible bit of storytelling. Very complex uh, way to depict religion on TV that we don't normally get uh, on TV at all, but especially not, I think, in science fiction TV, and actually is in stark contrast to the other way that religion is even depicted in this own this very same show where we get this sleeper religion on the planet yeah. Synax, where, uh, where Gail uh, Dornak is from, where religion is very clearly bad because their anti-religion is anti-science. That was yeah. a little tired for me. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, it's, it is perhaps a little bit more reminiscent of Asimov's own take. Um, and indeed, the way that Synax has been designed here um, seems to very much anticipate uh, the planet Ascone in part one, two, three, four of four, Foundation, yeah. <laughs> uh, the traitors section, um, where we have this planet where sort of technology is forbidden because of religious belief and, and, and stuff like this. And I, I wonder if the presence of this ideology on Synax um, signals an intent to kind of just ignore that section of the book and sort of skip to Hober Mallow and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, this this is more kind of what you expect out of a lot of sci-fi that wants to engage with religion, where religion is an impediment to learning, religion is an impediment to education, um, religion is used by people, you know, by a kind of priestly case to keep people complacent and, 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 and sort of favors belief over reason and all these kind of things, a little bit more tired. Um, provides kind of an interesting background for Gail's character, um, who, who is a compelling character as they've depicted her in this series. Um, and maybe that was the primary reason for that, um, what was to give her this kind of interesting backstory or something. But I agree with you that comparatively speaking, the depiction of religion on Synax, um, as opposed to the sort of way in which luminism is constructed seems like a lot more thought went into the went into the latter um 
in terms of its storytelling potential and sort of the the impact of its presentation and so forth. The, the Synex planet, I mean, we've seen this a hundred times in sci-fi, the, the, the planet that rejects math or science or whatever um, because of some religious tradition. Um, the, the only thing that is interesting there that seems very polemical is the um, uh, conflation of <laughs> uh, dedicated religious belief with climate change denial, which is a right. pointed a pointed commentary for sure because as we know the fall any any book about the fall of rome is not about rome it's about the present day any book, <laughs> any book that uses the fall of rome like foundation is still not about the fall of rome or about the galactic empire but about contemporary society and any book that any tv series that adapts any of these topics <laughs> is, is about, still about contemporary society it's never about rome as i said to my students this semester I didn't love the simplicity of the you know re the religious people being bad depicted as baddies here, so that Gal Dornick could be a hero. But actually, there is still a lot of interesting material in this sleeper religion on Synax. One, this is a a new new iteration of this religion. It's clear that this is the religion of this planet, or at least you know this part of this planet anyway. But that it has recently undergone a reformation as a result of. The, of climate change that you know we see this as an ocean planet and it's clearly been a, a you know always been a watery planet but it's only recently that it has it's undergone this climate change and the, like cities have flooded and people are living differently now and yeah. the religious reform that happens here the anti-science of this religion is because they blame science for climate change that they blame the scientists or industrialists perhaps we should say right people who figured out how to harness and abuse the power of nature are the people who 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 did this um here it's not like you know like uh, burning fossil fuels and emissions it's something to do with volcanism or something yeah, like that exactly. I think, you know like maybe tapping as geothermal energy or something like that but this itself is an interesting idea right it's not that they're in denial about climate change it's that they're angry about it and don't want it to happen again or anymore and so they're going to create a society that doesn't have the ability to do that this also though just is an homage to a book that we've talked about on the air before jay but that you have not read which is uh, a canticle for Leibowitz by walter miller which is yeah. uh, science fiction monks uh, a post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic society retelling the history of late antiquity, the Middle Ages, uh, uh, the scientific revolution, and in the early phase of of that, right after the nuclear apocalypse, this is the same move that is made in that world. They round up any educated person and execute them because it's those people who created the machines that just destroyed the world. And we're never going to let that happen again. So it's a nice homage, a nice nod to that, and. It's actually not that I, I don't dislike that idea at all. I just wish we'd gotten more of it because it was depicted just in this way to give Gal Dornick a backstory and we didn't sit with it enough. I, I think, you know, for it to really develop as a theme, it, maybe we will get that later. One other note I'll make on this though too is just that also this is an H.P. Lovecraft illusion right this really yeah, the sleeper beneath the, the sleeper, way that's cthulhu right. it's cthulhu they're worshiping cthulhu um yeah. because of climate change <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah i mean the the sleeper religion you know the, not everybody who watches the series will pick up on that but it's intended it's clearly there to yeah be it's a nice deep cut for sure yeah it's a nice touch <laughs> and it is interesting that the the first season ends with a scene back on Synax, actually, of all possible places to conclude the season. Yeah, true. We're on Synax rather than Terminus, which is, you know, 
kind of unexpected in some ways and um, suggests to me that there's still some role for this to to be played here. I, I don't know why we would have Hardin and uh, Gale meeting on Synax of all possible places um, in, unless there was some role for this planet um, and its inhabitants going forward in the story. Um, so uh, it, it will be interesting to see if they come back to this or if <laughs> Next time we see Hardin and and Gale, they're they're off on some other spaceship together, going to going back to Terminus or something like this. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, the the that our that our last image of the season was the two of them on Synax. Um, given that it hadn't been a major plot point really for most of the season, was a, a striking image. Yeah, I don't know what uh, what else they would have to do there for for Harden and Dornick, but I would be interested yeah. to see them there doing doing something. I mean, I'm interested in seeing certainly seeing the continuation of their their story, which is clearly at this point going to deviate quite a bit from what what Asimov does. But in general, I mean, I think I have really enjoyed the the breadth of of world building that this show has done. You know, taking a oh, few yeah. cues from Asimov, but then building out the Luminism, building out this sleeper religion on. Synax. We also get languages depicted here in ways that you know we talked about when we covered the book. Just isn't really a feature of the world the way that Asimov is writing it. Uh, we even get uh, Gail Dornick talking about you know counting systems that are you know non non decimal that don't you know that was a nice touch. <laughs> that was yeah, a cool not touch base too. 10. Yeah, not base that was 10. a nice touch. Yeah, that was really cool. So just, you know, really a lot of emphasis on culture and religion in ways that we didn't have Asimov doing in in the books in ways that we we discussed when we when we when we covered Foundation. But also, we need to talk about the way that they're adapting and depicting science and technology in this show. I mean, it's yeah. a show about, you know, a spacefaring civilization. And uh, they've done some interesting things there. One that we've talked about already and maybe don't need to talk about too much more is cloning being central to this story yep. that I don't think showed up at all in the text. No, I... I, I, I... I didn't go back as rigorously as I should, I suppose, but um, there's very little talk of genetic technology or or anything like that. Right. I mean, this um, foundation, books. all of it written before the discovery yeah. of DNA, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, it's not it's not something Asimov would have really played with. I mean, we do have sci-fi stories that sort of speculate about cloning from you know earlier than the technology was going to be there, or even genetic knowledge was really played out. Um, but no, I mean, th this was something definitely introduced into here. It's interesting, too, that they, they I don't know how much they're going to make it a plot point, um, but they, they do take the time to write a storyline here about sort of um, the the kind of malleability of genetic technology and the way in which this kind of terrorist group or whatever we want to call it corrupted the DNA of the youngest emperor and stuff. Um, possibly setting up some kind of bioethics questions that the show wants to explore in, in seasons going forward. Um, they, they've sort of laid the groundwork for that. It doesn't strike me as a show that yet has really done much exploration of bioethics. Um, but with the idea of the genetic dynasty there is, is certainly ready to take on those questions if it wants to. And genetic uh, engineering is also core to space travel, which 
frankly, it's an adaptation of, of Dune. This is how space travel functions yeah, in Dune. Exactly. They have, they've taken it, which I think the is- The navigators. Yeah, exactly. Navigators. I mean, they call them what, spacers here, I guess, yeah. but they're genetically modified humans, uh, modified so that they can- uh, stay awake, stay conscious, and stay sane uh, yeah, for exactly. jump jump drive technology, which otherwise the human mind, uh, the human brain, as it exists in nature, simply cannot handle. That's itself kind of interesting. And we have also set up that um, actually we've seen a non-spacer character deal just fine with that too, in fact, uh, though they have a biological relationship, it turns out uh, later. So there might be some interesting things going on there, but it's very different, I think, than what we envision when we're reading what Asimov has has written. And the other thing about this is that um, uh, a, a key piece of vocabulary never once uttered in this show is nucleics or yeah. nuclear, just yeah. just not what this show is about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Foundation, nuclear power is sort of the, becomes the central metaphor for preservation of knowledge and the status of a civilization and things like that. And yeah, it's, it's, it's not in, not in this show at all. And in fact, at the moment, there really is no central metaphor that takes the place of nuclear either um, as sort of if you have this, you have achieved the status of civilization as opposed to barbarian kingdoms. There's really nothing that seems to be the clear um, – that that serves a clear, obvious storytelling purpose as the marker of, of civilizational status as opposed to dark ages and things like that. But interestingly, the show seems very little concerned with that problem overall. Um you know, psychohistory here is not a philosophy. It's merely a plot point, as far as I can tell. It's not really developed into a, much of an ethos for the show overall or anything like that. Um, the show has taken very little time to sort of explore um, what the kind of regression of knowledge might actually look like or feel like or something like that. Right. It, one of the things that struck me, you know, for instance, like the foundation itself on Terminus looks nothing like I imagined it, um, right? What what they've done here is pull some kind of space Western iconography out that looks like it would belong in Firefly or, um, you know, you know, kind of weird bad sci-fi shows like Defiance or something like that, um, where the foundation, the repository of all these super professors and all galactic knowledge and stuff like that is this kind of ghetto little Western town constructed out of shipping containers, basically. Um, not not at all what I was envisioning, I have to say. No, and th this was the real impetus for us wanting to cover the show was to see, yeah. <laughs> our question was, how much like a monastery is the foundation going to be like? Or is it going to look like uh, the warehouse out of Indiana Jones or out of Raiders yeah. of the Lost Ark? That was kind of our question. And it turns yeah. out none of the above is the yeah. is the answer. You know, yeah, in, we were in, the only people who cared about that. <laughs> I know, we, it turns Turns out, yeah, it turns out. But yeah. Because in the book, right, it's 100,000 people. We joked over and over again about yeah. what an amazing university that is with 100,000 faculty. And then when we jump to Salvar Hardin, uh, we're told there's a million people now, descendants of of, of the, 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 you know, the, the 
first hundred thousand people there, which is a huge amount of growth. And yeah. this is it's a it's a planet that's doing great. They've got great. They don't have the mineral resources, right? A big deal is made of that, but it's a um, highly agricultural planet where they have a really nice standard of living. There's a whole city that has grown up uh, adjacent to the foundation, which is still this like robust and active academic institution, and it's a million people. Here it's like I don't know fifty people. 100 people yeah. and then some some kids and <laughs> exactly. like they, they no one has a change of clothes and yeah they're living out of shipping containers and on rocks nothing can grow here so yeah. it's a it very looks like it's one, one bad storm away from being yeah. wiped out basically yeah <laughs> right. exactly yeah and i mean the foundation itself like i mean i'm pretty sure the term encyclopedists is never mentioned in here no and in fact the the head of of the organization at some point says, um, I thought what we were doing here was creating a time capsule, which yeah. is that is not what they're doing in the book. They're not creating a time capsule. They're not and and we see no. them having this argument about like what type of clock they should put in the, the time capsule. I thing, know. <laughs> which is not what we're doing at all. It's we're founding a university. <laughs> So that this university can keep knowledge alive and yeah. and, and and you're not just alive but living uh, yeah. when yeah. it co- when not it so collapses it will be in the resurrected center. in a thousand years right. but so that there will be continuity yeah. yeah 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 so very different idea there and yeah that's the core idea of what Asimov is doing that's why it's called foundation the story is called foundation yeah this story exactly. is only called foundation because it's the name of the book because otherwise Correct. it would be called you know like empire right like is that's clearly where the focus of the show is yeah and you know the the interesting thing you know the, there are a couple of nods given to this idea that what the foundation is supposed to do is the preservation of knowledge um and in fact one of the most interesting and provocative moments in the show comes when gale sits in on a meeting of the foundation's leaders on the ship on its way to terminus and begins interrogating them as to like what knowledge is going to be preserved and what not like are we only going to preserve the knowledge and traditions of the core worlds you know are the outer reach worlds going to be lost and like okay cool like man that could be an entire narrative storyline of of a show that sort of is working with Asimov that would both stay true to sort of some of Asimov's ideas but also update it because indeed the politics the ethics of a something like foundation would be what knowledge is going to be preserved and what isn't? What's worth preserving and what isn't? What cultural traditions get to stay and which are not worthy of being preserved? Like that was an interest, very interesting moment in the show, but does not appear to be um, what the show actually wants to explore at all. The, the entire project of preserving knowledge, um, which, you know, even in the novel turns out to be kind of a head fake in some ways, but gets very little screen time in this depiction in in this in this show yeah yeah i mean it it certainly is a, a a kind of ruse in the book but less so than it is here right where for one one Correct. thing we know that the foundation does continue on in its work it's just that there is actually also other stuff going on or maybe we should say the encyclopedia project that's all continuing on even after it you know the appearance of the of the recording of harry selden saying yeah. yeah sorry there was actually something else going on here uh that's a little bit different than the you know pretense i pitched to to all of you though but like yet this is still going to be a part of what we're doing that is not at all what happens here and in fact no. maybe this is a good place to move into even talking specifically about psychohistory because even though the foundation 
uh, is not, or the Encyclopedia Project, maybe we should say, is not the thing that is key to Harry Seldon's plan in the book to save, or you know, to to reduce the period of the Dark Ages to only a thousand years. That's yeah. not actually the key element of it. It is still something that's that's continuing, something that 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 is a real uh, foundation, right? Um, it is still the case that Harry Seldon has been using psychohistory to predict the future and to try to mitigate negative effects or the effects of a negative thing, a cataclysmic collapse of the imperial state. Here in the show, I don't think psychohistory is even real. Be- yeah. Right? It's a, it's not actually, it's all a fraud in the show. And, and Selden even says, yeah, it turns out I lied to all of you. We actually are just a revolution. I'm just yeah. a political <laughs> revolutionary. I'm Lenin or, you know, I don't know, George Washington, you know, somebody, yeah, Thomas exactly. Jefferson. And uh, I lured you all here under false pretenses to help me launch a revolution. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think the writers of the show, um, and, and this had to be one of the central conundrums going into to making the show, um, we're simply conflicted about how much focus to put on the idea of psychohistory. And it's sort of a tough decision to make because on the one hand, for the most part, the story is not going to make sense without the idea of psychohistory, without the idea of Selden having a plan that is coming to fruition. Um, the entire novel is structured around the idea of Selden crisis and their resolution and stuff like that. So jettisoning it seems like that's not going to work that well. On the other hand, making it the primary driver of the story, well, that also gets a little tedious and so forth. It's kind of an abstruse concept to have to explain to people. Um, it makes the story seem to lack urgency and agency and stuff like this. And in the end, they just kind of settled on this kind of wishy-washy middle ground, I think, in some ways where Selden is clearly a genius, clearly has some kind of plan. He has some kind of math worked out that seems to maybe convince Gale, but it maybe isn't as perfect or as refined as what we see in the novel. There are weird moments whereby even though the novel does lip service to this idea that what psychohistory does is pre- predict mass social movements, um, the movements of collectives, but cannot focus on individuals. Nonetheless, Selden apparently comes to the realization that um, Gale and Raish's relationship is going to undo just them two as individuals are going to undo the entire plan if it's not fixed. So it kind of undercuts its own kind of ideology right there. It's just, you know, it it was always going to be a tough task to figure out what role to let psychohistory as a concept play in the show. And the, the solution they seem to have struck on is to have it be there, but not to let it drive the story, which is probably about the best solution you can come up with in this ways. But it has created some weird knots in the narrative. I mean, I think at this point, psychohistory is more or less done in the show. I mean, so, you know, when I said earlier that psychohistory is a complete fraud, I I, I am not really all that convinced actually that uh, Gail Dornick was convinced (laughs) about the math, right? She clearly lies when she tells the, 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 you know, imperial authorities that she is convinced by it. It, It's not clear that she sees that it's a fraud, but it is clear that she's not convinced by it, but goes along with it anyway, because Harry Seldon has rescued her from this, uh, 
fanatical fundamentalist religion that wants yeah. to execute people with intellectual tendencies right on you know on synax and the other thing that goes away here is that we you know harry selden continues as a character after his death in the book but uh and he does that here too but in the book he does it as recordings as okay so right about now uh you should be at the second crisis the third crisis yeah. <laughs> here's my recording i made for you while yeah. i'm dying from a, a terminal disease uh so that you can have my advice based on what i have seen in the math that's not what happens here here we get an uploaded consciousness who's live and interacting with people and yeah. is is going to use his powers of math to navigate the the revolution he's leading. Yeah. And exactly. and that's the fundamental and this is where maybe we can start talking about the contemporary political philosophy, the political philosophy of this show, right? Because Selden here is not someone who's trying to mitigate the fall of the empire. He's trying to bring it about. So that's Correct. a huge change in perspective uh, here in this story. Yeah, and and very much one that is in keeping with the times. I, I think you know um, when Asimov was writing, you know, certainly there were critiques of empire and stuff like this, but nothing compared to the uh, post-imperialist, post-colonialist um, mindset of the contemporary world. Um, and yeah, whereas in the novel, Selden still takes. Um, the existence of an empire as a good, and in fact, is what he wants to get to. Like, let's get to the second empire faster here, rather than enduring 12,000 years, we can get to the next empire in only a thousand years. Um, in this show, um, the empire seems to be the problem. It isn't clear that the state or the existence of order or a state authority is the problem per se, but the existence of the empire is the problem. And here, the genetic dynasty serves as the synecdoche for the problems with empire, I think. But yeah, I mean, it, it does wind up with a very different kind of political philosophy. I think you've mentioned the word revolution a couple of times, which is good. In, in some ways, the Selden of the book is kind of a conservative, actually. Um, and the Selden of the TV series is kind of a revolutionary, um, wants to overthrow, not preserve in some ways. Yeah. And we're going to need to think about why, but let, let's look at some text yeah. before we we do that. And 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 so let, let's actually just start by comparing several bits of text uh, from the book versus the show. And, you know, because we spent a lot of our first episode on the novel uh, talking about, you know, Selden's predictions of, you know, what's going to happen when the empire falls and why the empire is going to fall. And then trying to kind of, you know, ascertain Asimov's own concerns about his own day from that. And we get those same beats here on screen, but they're, they're different. And I think that comparison will be, will be telling. So let me just read, you know, what the book, uh, you know, the text from the book, Asimov's text says here, uh, under the category or under the heading of what's going to happen when the empire yeah, falls. Right. And here, here's what Selden says. He says, the empire, gentlemen, as has just been said, has stood 12,000 years. The dark ages to come will endure not 12, but 30,000 years. A second empire will rise, but between it and our civilization will be 1,000 generations of suffering humanity. We must fight that. With the destruction of our social fabric, science will be broken into a million pieces. Individuals will know much of exceedingly tiny facets of what there is to know. They will be helpless and useless by themselves. The bits of lore, meaningless, will not be passed on. 
they will be lost through the generations. But if we now prepare a giant summary of all knowledge, it will never be lost. Coming generations will build on it and will not have to rediscover it for themselves. One millennium will do the work of 30,000. So that's what Selden says in the book. In in on screen, the things that he's saying will happen will be that, you know, when the empire falls, what will happen is that order will vanish, interstellar wars will be endless, and 10,000 worlds will be reduced to radioactive cinders. So very different concerns, right? TV Selden doesn't care at all about science and technology. He's concerned about, about violence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, very much the you know, sort of two ideas here uh, about sort of what the end of empire represents. Asimov kind of drawing on Gibbon, you know, really sees the dark ages as a cultural phenomenon, the loss of knowledge, um, which is going to lead to human suffering and human misery because this knowledge created the technological conditions for comfort and all these kinds of things. Whereas uh, TV Selden is about sort of peace versus war um, and, and sort of destruction and violence and all these kind of things. It sees the end of empire as um, coterminous with the rise of war, with the rise of violence and stuff like that. Very different, actually. You know, superficially kind of feel like they have something similar, but very different um, in their kind of ideologies. Yeah. And, I, you know, certainly something that we get in, you know, from Book Selden, from Asimov himself, is this idea that, you know, what the state is for is to preserve uh, a a material civilization a material culture and and all of the things that that is is based on and also to fund fund universities as much as you possibly yeah, exactly. can right yeah. those are the things asimov is interested in it's the, those are the things that he thinks the state is for as he's writing in the middle of the second world war although this these, these lines of course coming uh in the early 1950s or maybe late 1940s but then published with the book version of the story rather than serially in the magazine but then yeah we've gone through the cold war and 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 maybe even gone through i guess the war on terror or at least you know i guess we hadn't uh left Afghanistan when when this was you know all written and and filmed but a very different geopolitical system where here this almost seems to be lamenting the hegemony of the cold war where like the thing that superpowers are for the thing that massive states are for is to minimize violence yeah uh, you know exactly. to, as much as possible to keep it on the fringes if you can't completely get rid of it entirely to at least keep it on the edges and that you know once the when superpowers vanish what will happen is more is violence internal violence part of me wonders at the motivation behind the decision to make this what the fall of empire would be about because if we really think of contemporary concerns today and what the collapse of a state might entail um i actually don't think many people jump to the idea of massive civil war or anything like that, right? Very few of our kind of current dystopic um, novels, you know, sort of future dystopian novels about the collapse of society really focus on the outbreak of mass civil war or anything like that. They focus on dramatic gaps in living conditions, extreme poverty versus extreme wealth and stuff like that. Even think of, you know, an example as simple as the Hunger Games or something like that. But I and I wonder if just for the 
purposes of writing of this show, if massive warfare and the incineration of 10,000 worlds was just the easiest way to talk about like bad stuff is going to happen. Right. It's it's certainly a, a kind of lowbrow, <laughs> like yeah, easy to grasp exactly. sort of thing to say, like, look, bad stuff's going to happen. The bad stuff is going to be lots of people dead uh, right away because of, yeah. of the collapse of of order. But I, I might actually push back, Jay, against your characterization of, of post-apocalyptic stories. I, I mean, maybe not push back against it, but 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 nuance it a bit by, by saying that I think that that's right about the way that we're doing a lot of storytelling now. But that's because the apocalypse that we're envisioning is not the disintegration of a strong central state. The apocalypse that we're envisioning is climate change or nuclear war. That's true. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And so if, if we told a story that was just about the political system of the United States breaking down, say, over uh, election problems. Yeah. You, sure. you know, yeah. things that we've actually experienced, right? Uh, I mean, even while we were recording, I think our first episode, we were going, you know, that was very early on in 2020. Because, yeah. Uh, as we were in the middle of a, a presidential transition, I think we may have even talked about that on the air, right? That contested elections uh, becoming a fact of life, uh, uh, divide into political factionalism, things that Asimov yeah. was talking about in the book. If yeah, that were to absolutely. happen to the United States, let's say, you know, you know, 40 years from now, such that we've actually got states seceding, groups of states saying, you know what, we're going to, you know, that the five of us are going to be kind of our own new thing. We might, you know, that apocalypse, you know, that, that might be more about warfare and violence. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. Um, I think also that one of the things the show is trying to navigate, one of the, the problems the show is trying to navigate is to figure out um, how to write this kind of revolutionary story in which the emperors, who Harry Seldon clearly refers to as the problem, right? The genetic dynasty has caused the stagnation of empire and stuff like that. How to treat the emperors as kind of the bad guys, but also treat treat the empire as kind of the thing that needs to be saved in some ways so that order is preserved and something like that. Like, right, as you said, it's profoundly uncertain in the TV series what outcome Selden wants. Does he want another empire? Does he just want an empire, but with, you know, regular emperors rather than genetic emperor, you know, d a genetic dynasty and stuff like that? Whereas in the book, it's pretty clear. Um, we just have to get to the next empire um, so that, you know, order will be preserved and stuff like that. In the TV series at this point, it's, it's just profoundly uncertain what the trajectory is. Is it the emergence of a kind of non-imperial state? Um, is it the emergence of lots of regionalized uh, states, something less big than the Galactic Empire? Is it still an autocratic state with an emperor, but something more benign and more changeable than the genetic dynasty? Um, in some ways, until we know the answer to that question, I find it very difficult to parse the political philosophy of the show because uh, it, it's just unclear what Selden wants to get rid of and what Selden wants to preserve. Right. I mean, we can even go back, I think, to comparing you know Selden versus Selden here in the, the beginning of the story when he talks about you know, okay, so we've talked about like what what's going to be the consequence of the empire falling, but then the question is, what are the factors that are going to lead to the empire 
falling? Like, what are the things that screen Selden sees as being the problem? And, you know, here I'll just read a little bit from the, the book again. Book Selden says, the fall of empire, gentlemen, is a massive thing and not easily fought. It is dictated by a rising bureaucracy, a receding initiative, a freezing of caste, a damning of curiosity, a hundred other factors. I think we talked for about four or five hours about just that sentence. I know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, we get the same speech here on screen, but Screen Selden, you know, says almost none of the none of these things. What he says is going to happen is military pressure from outsiders, an exhortation from one of the galaxy's major religions, or it's and or I suppose uh, a homegrown insurrection right here on Trantor. So very, very different explanations, right? Where the, you know, Book Selden is again thinking about science and education and universities, but then also a kind of a slowing down and maybe entrenchment of the machinery of yeah. government. Whereas, yeah, yeah Screen Selden is talking the, about the, the ability to impose order. Yeah, right. Yeah, the weight of empire versus the, the you know, the ability to, I guess, military effectiveness in some ways is what yeah. Screen Selden is very concerned about. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. Like, you know, we talked in our very first episode about this, you know, famous article or well-known article um, that divides people who study the fall of Rome into movers and shakers. Um, Movers being people who think that the fall of Rome came from external pressures and shakers being people who think that the fall of Rome comes about through internal problems, through sort of internal fault lines within the empire itself. And Asimov and Book Selden is very much a shaker. Um, the empire is going to collapse under its own weight, under its own problems and stuff like that. Uh, TV Selden, maybe a little bit more uh, a hybrid of the two, but seems to be leaning a little bit towards the movers category here when he call, says military pressure from outsiders. Well, all right. I mean, in in the book, we get no sense that there really are outsiders. There's nothing outside the Galactic Empire in some ways right. in the book. Um, and here, this milit- we don't really know what this military pressure from outsiders are. We get this kind of active revolt that blows up the Star Bridge, which we're supposed to take as the first sign of the possible fraying of imperial authority or fraying of imperial ideology. But we still don't know where that came from or anything. Anacreon and Thespis are part of the Empire. They're not outsiders, although they're clearly fringe members or something like this. A homegrown insurrection here on Trantor. All right, we've gotten hints of that with this uh, rogue group that wants to corrupt the genetic dynasty and has had some pretty impressive plans to do so and stuff like that. Like, there's all sorts of hints here as to the way in which Imperial authority might begin to fray or collapse or something like that. But the mechanisms for it have very little to do um, with what we see in the book, for sure. And again, in the book, the problem is that the emperor isn't powerful enough, that the emperor himself has been overpowered by these rivaling factions, which are creating all these problems. In the TV series, the opposite seems to be the problem. The emperor is too powerful and too unchanging and too rigid and stuff like that, right? It's his autocraticness that's the problem, whereas in the book, it's his lack of control that is the problem. (laughs) I mean, very different when you get down to it. 
But yeah, that's not what's happening on on screen here at all. And and I'm with you, Jay, in, in being kind of confused about the political philosophy of the the TV show. We're, we're supposed to be rooting for the foundation and we this are. alliance with Anacreon and Thespis. I think. Well, I think it's a question, like right, because it does seem like at least until the last maybe two episodes of the show that we were supposed to be thinking of the genetic dynasty as the baddies in yeah. some way, though it might turn out as we've joked that Lee Pace is going to turn out to, you know, have this real conversion event yeah. that might make him turn out to not be such a baddie. Yeah. I mean, Selden's big speech um, when he finally appears out of the vault, um, <laughs> the vault in this case being slightly different than the literal vault in the book. Um, but, you know, actually says, uh, I think he, you, you raised this for discussion, um, the human race is an ever-evolving story told over thousands of years by a countless number of voices, but for a long time now that chorus has been suffocated and quietly erased because under the genetic dynasty there is only room for one story, one voice. We cannot become who we must become if the empire is allowed to persist. persist that path leads to the annihilation of the human race. I mean – there we go. Like, okay, but even there, it's not clear. Like, is the problem the genetic dynasty or is the problem the empire, right? The empire has been around for 12,000 years, the genetic dynasty only for 400 and stuff like this. Um, yeah, I mean, th- we're trying to set up here um, this sort of notion that somehow um, the overpowering and yet unchanging nature of the genetic dynasty is what has set up the annihilation of the human race. Um, that being a much more dramatic effect than even what Asimov suggested in the book, which was merely dark ages, humans living in humans yeah. living in misery, <laughs> but not the annihilation of the human race. Um, and I don't know. It, it just becomes a little bit puzzling how the show is going to navigate um, this kind of anti-imperialist ethos with the idea that also what we're supposed to get is some kind of stability and order or something like that as a result of the work of the foundation. Yeah, the the complaint from Selden here, and that we then also get in other places in the story about the genetic dynasty, what's wrong with this dynasty of, of Cleons is stagnation. Stagnation yeah. versus evolution. Right? The word evolving is is there in the text, uh, the Selden text that you just read. But we also get this uh, in the the Luminism story as well, where the uh, the the highly Neoplatonic candidate to head Luminism, uh, who's going to be critical. Uh, in fact, just is baldly critical of the genetic dynasty. Says, as the galaxy changes, so must we. We must embrace the value of transformation, of evolution, of difference. The greatest failure of humanity, the greatest sin against the mother, is stagnation. And and this is a speech that is meant to be critical of the genetic dynasty as stagnant yeah. because it's the same person more or less in charge all the time and the the you know the that's a bad thing stagnation is a bad thing change is good transformation evolution is is good neither of these figures is actually telling me why that's true they're yeah. <laughs> asserting it's true and and having great actors deliver these lines in a rousing way that makes me want to believe it. But they're not actually making an intellectual argument for 
why why this is true, like why these are the values we should have, and then also not proving to me that the genetic dynasty actually doesn't embody those values. None yeah, of those arguments exactly. are being made. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I th- here we have sort of a, a, a kind of easy conflation of genetic identity, you know, or, or something with unchanging and non-something whatever the opposite of evolution is, stagnation, I guess, is a perfectly good word. But it is interesting because <laughs> the political philosophy here of the show is clearly pushing for the idea that, yeah, change is actually good. We need change. Like, stuff can't stay the same. But is also sort of pushing the idea <laughs> that we need to Make preserve. Sure and, yeah, order to- <laughs> order yeah, yeah, stays yeah, the same. I mean, it's yeah. sort of like <laughs> yeah. Selden is saying, well, we need to get rid of the empire but we need to do it in such a way that will not lead to the col- total collapse of, you know, order and endless interstellar war and stuff like that. And and so again, it, it just becomes this kind of weird sort of what is actually being agitated for here? Like if what you want to avoid is interstellar war, it kind of seems like the emperors are doing that right now. Um, if what you want to avoid is autocratic power, which is what Selden kind of seems to do in this last speech, there's only been room for one voice for countless years right now. Uh, okay, then, you know, Overthrowing an empire is probably going to involve some warfare and some violence and stuff like that. In fact, we see quite a lot of violence in this show compared to the book. Um, So it's sort of just like there seems to be a very kind of compelling ethos to the show. But if there's one thing that kind of at this moment is lacking compared to Asimov's work, it's that there doesn't seem to be as tight and coherent of an ideology underpinning um, all the actions of all the all the goals of all the characters at this stage. I, I, I agree. I think that one way that we can solve some of the tension here within Selden, even like screen Selden, is is simply to say that, you know, all the speechifying that Harry Selden makes in part one of the novel, that is authentically Harry Selden. But I yeah. think I don't I think that the the adaptation of the of that material on screen that the Selden who is saying those things all these you know the, the bit of text that I I read earlier that's not authentically Selden that is Selden trying to sell himself his program to the empire by saying yeah, I'm exactly. all like if the empire goes away it's going to be terrible and I'm all for trying to preserve the empire because I think then the speech that you read here that he gives to um an audience on terminus of the the, the foundation people and then Thespis and Anacreon where he's he actually it's it comes right after he says well actually I am a revolutionary yeah, I think exactly. this is that this speech is the authentic Selden where no no he wants to overthrow the empire he thinks the empire is bad but it's still confusing to me whether he's talking about really the empire or just the genetic dynasty because he, exactly. he says both he says under the genetic dynasty there's only room for one story so if we get a different set of emperors that's fine then everything will be great is that so is that what he's doing but then literally two sentences later he says we cannot become who we must become if the empire is allowed to persist. So I, it is unclear which it is. Is it just this particular dynasty? Is it the whole institution of the empire? And if if empire, like what do you mean by empire? Do you mean like the state? Do you mean autocracy? <laughs> like what? It's unclear. Yeah, it's unclear. So we don't know. But I think it's supposed to sound like he's an advocate for democracy. Yeah, something like this, or at least. Uh 
if not an advocate for democracy, at least a critic of authoritarianism and autocracy and and things like this. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the show continues to navigate this tension if it becomes any more clear sort of what Selden's endgame is here and stuff like that, you know, because what the foundation starts to do in the book, albeit in a very slow sort of way, is build another empire sort of attached to Terminus as its capital. Um, you know, it goes through the the mayors and then eventually the traders and then the merchant princes and stuff like that. It is the story of essentially Terminus's spreading influence and spreading control over larger and larger parts of the remnants of the Galactic Empire. Um, like, is that the story this TV series is actually going to tell? Yeah, yeah. I don't think so, right? I mean, the story in the book is is the foundation itself is the main character. Uh, you know, yeah. it's the only character that persists through through, you know, each each segment of the story. And and it's a story about state building. Right. It's it's a story yeah, about building exactly. institutions of a state, transforming those institutions over time, you know, in order to deal with uh, you know, how many subjects you have, how far away they are, uh, you know, what you're trying to accomplish at any given moment. Right. But it's a story about state building. But yeah. but it seems like on screen, we're about to get a story about about state destroying. Right. That this is going to be a story in which we're going to root for revolutionaries, but while also maybe at the same time beginning to feel sympathetic towards Brother Day as he's had this religious conversion. And that maybe somehow he actually is going to like join. He's going to try to become an internal reformer in some (laughs) way and be killed by the robot or, you know, unclear. Right. But something they're going to try to show us some shades of gray there, I guess. But I think that ultimately this is going to start to feel a lot more like Star Wars. I think that's a a relatively good chance. Or um, as I was looking at some of the visuals of the show, um, even down to like, um, the internal optics of some of the ships and stuff like that. Um, I almost wonder if we're not heading for a show that could wind up feeling a little like Battlestar Galactica. Oh, yeah. Um, which explores, you know, some of these same themes about, um, religion versus science. You know, we've got the robot character who is also super religious, um, which is a recurrent theme of Battlestar Galactica. Earlier, I said that foundation, um, wouldn't look out of place sort of in the Firefly universe, but man, it also looks a lot like um, New Caprica um, from Battlestar Galactica, uh, right? Kind of this barren, cold planet capable of supporting life, but not the most pleasant place to live and stuff. Um, so it seemed to me like there were some cues going on from there, um, and and it wouldn't surprise me if if that kind of uh, if that kind of like twine of influence starts to grow a little bit um, in, in future seasons. Right. Battlestar Galactica, I think, was right uh, uh, the, at the forefront of the let's go film in Iceland. Yeah, uh, exactly. Movie, which which <laughs> is, is what we're seeing there. That's the Terminus yeah. is Iceland. And uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure New Caprica was as, as well, though. Don't don't quote me on that. But yeah, I, I'll say just to sort of start wrapping up talking about the political philosophy of the show. I am disappointed in the political philosophy of the show to the extent that it has no nuance and is not making any actual argument to me as an audience about what political system the story is advocating for. Like, what what are they trying to convince me of? That is unclear. This is a gripe not specifically about 
foundation the TV show. This is a gripe perhaps about the medium of television at all. Mm, yeah. Right. It's it's limited in its capacity to do that. Yeah. And also, I mean, we were never going to get as a television show a story that was driven by characters sitting in rooms and talking to each other endlessly, yeah, which is- We used to have a TV show that was driven by LeVar Burton making PowerPoint presentations. Yeah, like we exactly. had a show yeah. like that. We can bring it back. We can bring it's it back. true. We could bring that back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as an interesting side point on that joke right there, um, the I got very strong uh, parallels between the depiction of Salver Harden in this show and- Michael Burnham in Star Trek Discovery, um, not not merely because they're notable African American women at, at occupying center stage in a sci fi show, which is excellent, um, but also the kind of relationship they had with the rest of the characters, um, kind of some of the structural roles that they played in the in the story and stuff like that. Um, I thought there was some interesting studies or connections to be made there uh, between those two characters. But I admit I haven't watched the most recent season of Discovery, so this may be entirely inaccurate at this point. No, no, no. I think you're, you're right. I'm, I'm current on it. The only just barely, Valerie and I are about to record an episode about uh, about the, the, the third season of Discovery. Oh, I guess I'm not really current on Discovery because I've not been watching the fourth season yet. But uh, no, I mean, the, you know, in, in terms of, of how we tell stories on screen, you know, relationship drama is a huge yeah. part of every story. That's the thing that we don't have in the next generation, really, where like, yeah, Jordy LaForge making PowerPoint presentations is a real driver. And that is something that has gone from Star Trek as well, because we want we want to have relationship drama. We want to have uh, the, yeah. the emotional experience of a, a protagonist be a big part of the show. And while I do agree with you that um – the political philosophy of foundation is kind of lacking and stuff. I'm willing to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt to develop this in seasons two and season three. There was a lot to be done in these first 10 episodes. Um, in, in a lot of, there's a lot of world building to be done. There was a lot of sort of characters to introduce and then characters to connect with each other. Um, there was the problem of rounding out a cast, which is, you know, like, to, you know, I mean, Harry Seldon barely even qualifies as a character in some ways in Foundation. Um, and overall, it, although I, I think the there was some real limitations, um, I, I, I actually am pretty favorably disposed to the first season of Foundation as a whole sort of storytelling enterprise. It was never going to be like Foundation. The book was going to be, I think. And overall, I, I, I I give it a pretty positive thumbs up, actually, for the way they constructed it. Um, my wife thought that the entire storylines involving the genetic dynasty was tedious and hated whenever they focused on those oh, characters. Wow. I loved I, it. I loved. I I was so. I thought it was such a great way to flesh that out. Uh, yeah. In fact, I, I would have watched a show that was just that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She wanted more Gail Dornick, basically, um, and more Salver Harden. I think. Um, she felt that some of Gail's storyline was a little bit fragmentary in that 
kind of disappeared for a couple of episodes and then was kind of just trapped on a spaceship for a while and was handled a little bit badly in some ways. Yeah, interestingly though, I mean, like Gail Dornick is the narrator of the show. I know. So it's her story. She's telling us a story about yeah. something. So like there must Absolutely. be more, you know, to come from her. So. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, the the kind of clever revelation, which I feel ashamed for not figuring out was coming that Salvar Hardin is actually Gail's um, daughter um, sort of sets up a, a long-term storyline there for sure um, and, and gives Gail a kind of notable role going forward. This kind of weird Gail apparently can sense the future. Right. Uh, and, okay. and her daughter can as well. So that's yeah. that's a genetic dynasty Correct. Uh, against yeah. another genetic dynasty, I guess. Yeah. Th- these were some places where I, yeah, I'm with you, Jay, in, in wanting to give the show a chance to come back in later seasons with a, a more nuanced a- attempt, more compelling attempt at actually telling me what would be a good political system, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. actually being sort of political science fiction in the way that the, the, the book is and and also understanding that this first season is the probably only bit of this show that's going to feel in any way like an adaptation that I think from here on out we're going to be entering for the most part original story territory from these writers where they'll be able to stretch their legs right because this speech where Selden finally says yeah actually we're a revolution and we're going to overthrow the empire that's what we're for we're not actually for trying to preserve it or conserve it in any way that's like the last episode <laughs> it's episode yeah. 10 it's like the last 10 minutes of the show so like yeah of course they have haven't had you know any time to 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 do what I'm asking them to do, and I'm willing to give them the chance to do that. But I am disturbed, I think, at 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 Salvor Hardin in this show. Um, in that you know, Salvor Hardin as the real hero of Foundation is a hero because Salvor Hardin is a dedicated and patriotic civil servant who's really yeah. good at that job. In the TV show, Selvar Hardin is a hero because Selvar Hardin has some kind of actual superpower and does a lot of violence and is good at doing violence. Yeah, has kind of emerged from uh, being the, kind of the, civil the servant as hero to to kind of yeah to kind of like Navy SEAL badass special teams forces kind yeah. of person, um, and I, even kind of dressed like it and stuff. And the show did a clever thing where they had her father quote her most famous line, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent, and have her respond like, you know, that's – that's uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but something dismissive like that's a man's position or something like that. Yeah, I mean it's – it's you, you, get to, you get to say that when you're comfortably on Trantor – and not out here on the outskirts is is the idea there. But that's kind of the whole point of Salvar Hardin in the book, though, is that he's able to to forego as much violence as possible in yeah. order and, and still build a state, still you know create a nation, build a new empire, and that that's what makes him heroic, or part of what makes him heroic, and also that it takes time. That it, the job the job is thinking and working, yeah. you know, work doing paperwork, right? It's and and not it's not being out there uh, with a gun and disobeying the chain of command and just blowing stuff up. Um, and and yeah. and and then also like Michael like, Burnham, like Michael Burnham. It's it's <laughs> yeah. exactly right. This is something that just pervades 
our storytelling right now that makes me anxious about our, our own our own future. It's it's you know taking a look at our own culture and it makes me real nervous that we just uh, we're not able we don't glorify mild mannered civil servants. Yeah, <laughs> we just we need genetically awesome super powered heroes who do a lot of violence. Those are the people we 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 choose to root for now. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that if what the show turns into – so again, I, I positive reactions to season one, benefit of the doubt on the things I didn't like. But if what the show turns into is like, let's build an alliance um, with enough resources to like overthrow the empire through civil war or something like that, um, which I think is what you meant when like you said it might turn into Star Wars or something. Right, right. Like that's a disappointing trajectory for the show rather than Foundation sitting back and saying, let's watch the Empire collapse and sort start planting the seeds for its replacement um, for for how to ameliorate the effects of its collapse um, is, you know, I, I, I don't need another show with a giant unwinnable space battle that our plucky heroes managed to pull out and overthrow the evil Empire. Um, I, you know, by, by its nature, Foundation should be a different show than that, which goes along with your point that in my hero figure, I don't need another space Western gunslinger ultimately. Like, yeah, I, I would be happy with the super smart, um, civil servant um who outwits opponents all the times um you know the the scenes i've always said that part three of foundation is my favorite part and the the scenes in which salvar hardens clever undermining of the anacreon attack on foundation are some of the coolest scenes in that book and you know i'd be a little sad if some version of that does not make it into the tv series for sure yeah i agree sadly i think that we have seen that storyline already <laughs> yeah it may be we've seen that storyline already um and that it's resolved at this point um i was also a little sad when the huntress character that the show seemed to have invested pretty considerable time in building up uh, over several episodes was kind of unceremoniously disposed of with an arrow through the throat out of nowhere. Um, right. I mean, like a- by, by Salver Hardin, who then is forgiven by even the Huntress's most loyal, you know, followers. Uh, uh, yeah. That, 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 that left a bad taste in my mouth as, as well. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, on the plus side, um, you know, if if handled well, I do actually think the setup at the end of this last season could be good. If if there's some kind of tenuous alliance between Anacreon Terminus and Thespis, but one that isn't sort of simply solidified into the seeds of a new empire, if there's still tensions and conflicts between the two of them, if that's where some of the focus of the next season goes, um, if it's not just all peaceful happiness because Harry Seldon came out and said, we all need to get along here. Like, yeah, I think there's some good potential there for directions to take the story that would allow some of part three of Foundation, the book, to sort of flourish in some form. Uh, This Hugo character, uh, Salver Hardin's boyfriend, might be foreshadowing the rise of sort of the traitors and eventually the merchant princes. So it's possible we will get some version of that story. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm keen to see where season two goes. I, I, I really am, um, despite the kind of shortcomings. And I, you know, I know Salver Harden's characterization has gotten some, some flack, uh, for being transformed into this action hero, but, eh, I don't know. Maybe she hangs out with Gail for a little while and comes back and has a, has a different perspective on things. Who knows? Maybe the death of her father sort of pushes her in a different direction. Um, yeah, could see where where things go with that. Yeah, I mean, this version of Salvar Hardin is younger than we see in part two of Foundation, you know, even at the start, right? So, well, I don't know, you know, we don't know for sure that Salvar Hardin in the book wasn't 10 years previously or five years pre- yeah. previously blowing things up and shooting people yeah. with arrows. We don't, we don't know, you know, he doesn't yeah, ever talk about it. So, possibly there's still room there for uh, becoming a, a mild-mannered uh, civil servant who just uh, just has an office and does some paperwork and thinks thinks about things real hard. Although I guess we do have the weird fact that the series ends uh, with Salvar Hardin and Gail Dornick on Synax 130 years after Selden's appearance at the vault. Um, So (laughs) we might be in store for a considerable time jump forward if, in fact, Salvar Hardin and Gail return to Terminus. Like, a lot of stuff will have happened in the meantime. Like... Maybe there's already no genetic dynasty. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, there might not. That's true. Yeah. Cause we don't see kind of beyond that in that time frame. And yeah, something this show is doing in terms of uh, uh, technology, science and technology is making great use of cryogenic freezing as yes. a, a, a type of time travel. And I suppose maybe there might be some stuff going on there with relativity as well, though that was less clear in the the way that it was presented on screen. But I think it does mean that we're not, we have not seen the last of Selver Hardin, Selver Hardin, Harry Selden, Brother Day. These are the, these are going to be the characters for several seasons to come. We're not going to get a completely new cast of characters every season that we are going to get, I, I assume, new characters every season, but we're going to kind of see, I guess, this core group of characters travel through time. Essentially, yeah, I think right. that's right. I mean, I, I assume that that group right there that you just listed will continue to be the m- main characters along with Gale in season two, right? If the plan is eight seasons and the plan is to go all the way through the full trilogy, you could imagine that season two is the last one to sort of feature uh, Salvor Hardin and Gale Dornick as the most prominent characters. Season three could be moving on to a, a different cast or something like that. I mean, the the genetic dynasty might still be kicking around. Um, but the interesting thing is at some point, if this show really wants to tell the story of the end of the Empire and really wants to go through the plot lines that we find in Foundation and Empire with the mule and stuff like that, at some point, you got to wrap up the genetic dynasty too. At some point, you got to move away from that. Yeah, um, yeah. And how you sort of handle that transition will be interesting. It may be that that's what the Luminism stuff is setting up, that the that there'll be some dramatic moment where the genetic di- dynasty decides to end itself or something like that. Um, well, I, I, yeah, I do think that is what the Luminism is going for. I, I think that's what's going to 
going to happen or something, something, something akin to that anyway. So yeah, some predictions, I guess. <laughs> we'll see how yeah, right we are. I guess we'll be, yeah. So maybe we've just committed ourselves to recording season two. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I, I definitely want to check out season two. So I certainly wouldn't be opposed to having another conversation with you about it. I mean, we, when we can record it or someday we might actually get to have a beer together in a bar again. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. We can hang out together and record something. <laughs> that's that true. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, let's wrap this up, Jay, just by, uh, by thinking again about something that we did in some of the episodes on the book, which is to think about uh, what's called the history of the future, right? The way the future is envisioned, you know, one generation of science fiction writers uh, to the next. And we had a lot to say about certain elements of Asimov's vision of the future. But hey, this is this is a vision of the future that's also very much rooted in its own contemporary circumstances. What were some things that jumped out to you here about just the, the I don't know, the look of this, the things the show focuses on, that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, my answer is as very often predictable because, you know, I am someone who is interested in media and the technology of knowledge preservation. And when we recorded our first episode on Foundation, I joked about the fact that this highly technologically advanced civilization was preserving the entirety of human knowledge on microfilm. <laughs> this is what the encyclopedists had available to them, microfilm, which I thought was hilarious even at the time. However... The show has outdone me in some ways. Not only do they never even bother to show us how they're preserving all this knowledge, and it would have been great if there was microfilm in this TV oh, series, yeah. by the way. But instead, we've gone further back in time. When Gale comes to visit Harry Selden in his library, it's not even printed books. It appears to be handwritten manuscripts. Yeah, uh, rolled up in in <laughs> scrolls. So that's something in you know. Scrolls. That's that's a very Roman Empire uh, type of library Roman there. Empire though the, the library that they use there to film, Jay. I don't know if you uh, recognized it. I actually don't know if you've been there at all. But that's Trinity Ooh. in Dublin. Oh, I've never been there. I yeah, didn't know that actually. I should have known. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and it's not really that that room is, uh, you know, it's a tourist room and they, there's a lot of filming that gets done there as part of that. It's really just kind of preserved as a sort of historical monument, but it's a beautiful, gorgeous space. And yeah, tourists oh, can go funny. in there. It's it's very cool. But that's where they that's where they filmed that. And uh, boy, it just immediately jumped out to me. I was I was so excited to, to see that, which has its own sort of, you know, medieval resonances, right? Of, you know, growing out of the, the medieval university system. But yeah, I mean, I just loved it that, you know, what Harry Selden is. It's just like, all right, we're in this galactic empire that has cloning and jump drives and all this other stuff. And Harry Selden's library is, again, not even like nice modern looking books, like books that look like they should have been produced by a civilizational technology like 16,000 years before this. I mean, these are some long lived manuscripts here for sure. Yeah. I mean, the book book is a it's an improvement. <laughs> It's yeah. an improvement. It is a technological <laughs> improvement uh, yeah, yeah. that that is was great to get in late antiquity, and uh, so yeah, it's uh, that's an interesting move. I I had real I, I had sort of mixed hopes and expectations for you know the aesthetics of this show, and 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 certainly there are there's a mixture of aesthetics in the show, right? I mean, as you've said, space western and like post apocalyptic look to the outer reaches and terminus in particular versus what we get you know in the past. Alice, which has a much more, you know, kind of science yeah. fiction Byzantine, space Byzantine look to it that's very, very cool. But I I think I was really hoping that we were going to get uh, an aesthetic that was a throwback to 
Asimov's era. And I was really kind of looking forward to uh, seeing, you know, this kind of 1940s, early 1950s aesthetic. I mean, I knew we weren't going to get a lot of cigar chomping because, you know, we just don't really want to be promoting tobacco use for good reasons, right? You know, that's yeah, just something yeah. that's that's kind of gone now. But I, I, I wanted it to look a little more like Mad Men, I think, than it did. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of a, a, a campy throwback to to sort of you know, kind of suits and collars and, yeah, and hats, just not enough hats. Furniture. Yeah. 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 <laughs> not enough hats. I thought that Lee Pace's like emperor outfits with the blue and the blue weird collar and stuff was eh, kind of lame. If I'm being honest with myself, um, it felt very star Wars. It felt very prequel era star Warsy to me. Um, yeah. I mean the, the, a lot of the iconography on here, the visuals, I agree, was pretty uninspired. Um, you know, I've already talked about Terminus and sort of how it looks like Firefly or New Caprica from Battlestar Galactica. Trantor itself, even when we get out into the urban environments and stuff, looked like a city from like 10 different sci-fi series. It's Blade Runner. That I've it's seen. Blade Runner. Yeah, it's Blade Runner. It's The Expanse when you're ah, sort yes. of out in the belt and stuff. Um, you know, yeah, I, I felt like I'd seen that a bunch of times and yeah i i guess i was hoping in some of the visuals here for it to be more kind of over the top classicizing in some ways i did like the uh the the existence of the big gardens outside of the imperial palace and i did like the mosaic stuff i thought that was cool touches um but yeah i uh, they they could have done better with a lot of the kind of visual construction of this world building and stuff like that even like the salt palace on the or whatever on the the luminism planet whose name i'm forgetting now i guess it's just called the maiden now that i think about it um you know that kind of looked familiar to me the kind of desert planet with the giant kind of ziggurat like temple and stuff like that feels like sci-fi series that i've seen before you know I, i'm sure the showrunners would tell us that these are all homages and stuff like that but uh, could have seen some new stuff there yeah i mean i'm with you in that i i also would have liked to have seen a little more classicism or something uh, you know where trantor looks a little bit more like rome uh yeah in in, in some way like you know rome with uh, uh you know iron <laughs> Yeah, 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 and space yeah, stuff. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like columns carved out of like, you know, like post-industrial ironworks or something like that. You know, you know, you know, temples made out of some sort of future shiny material or something could have been very cool. And I think that's what Asimov would have done, you know, if he had yeah. been able to to adapt this for the screen in some way. But I think in thinking of this as the segment where we're talking about the history of the future, I think that the showrunners have done a good job of 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 thinking about what the future is really going to, you know, to, to look like based yeah. on our current technology and to say it's digital. And so they've replaced that sort of thing with holographic projections. Yeah. You know, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what, uh, you know, one one knock on a lot of sci-fi shows is very often that uh, fantasy shows as well is that sometimes they depict thousands of years of history, but no real technological change right. at all. But, <laughs> but no, but I mean, might might this show like try to play with this idea? Like, you know, if the show really does do 300 years and wants to depict the decline of technology, um, might we see like uh, – 
scenes on Trantor where the emperors are walking through and the mosaic like just hasn't been painted for like the last 60 years. It's kind of shabby and falling apart um, where there's signs of, you know, material decay where there's jump ships, but, you know, they kind of like barely can get their rings moving each time you try to use them and stuff like that. Um, there could be interesting ways to kind of um, use a kind of material decay ethos to kind of look at some of the, the, the underlying themes of the show. Well, that's uh, I mean, that's straight out of Asimov, but I'm not sure that that's where the, is, yeah. not sure that's where the show is, uh, is, is going, but uh, yeah, we're circling back around now to predictions. So I think that's a good moment to wrap this episode up. So I'll sign off by saying I'm Glenn McDorman and uh, just Jay, thank you again for, for joining me on this. Uh, hopefully, you know, what we've done here will someday be used to rebuild civilization. <laughs> it's always That's my right. hope. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to be back. I mean, you know, by we, I mean us, <laughs> me and Jay will be back in about a month with an episode about the Guy Gabriel K novel, The Lions of al Rasan. In between that, though, I'm going to be airing a series of episodes that I did with Brandon Buddha about the Robert Heinlein novel, Starship Troopers, having very similar conversations, actually, about political philosophy and so on. And I uh, hope you'll uh, uh, check that out here on ATAS as well. And until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 